Sup? We don't have much time. The killer is... In the house? No, dude, it's much worse. How could it be worse than having a killer in my house? The killer is the house. I'm Sean Hills. And I'm Chris Campa. This is Circle Takes. Welcome to Circle Takes. <laughs> um, oof. I just really want to go into gut reaction, Sean. Um, no, Chris, you got to <laughs> tell them what it's about. Ah, okay. Uh, this was this was a very interesting movie. Uh, in an effort to make the best brief premise I could, I see it as um, a group of young ladies, students at a school, go on a holiday to a haunted house. And I think they learn quite a bit about themselves and each other. Wow, that's touching. (laughs) Cats, powers, woman eating pianos. I think I think this is where Hugo's House of Horrors got its inspiration. Shout out to Hugo's House of Horrors, uh, classic 1990s computer game. Classic DOS game. I played that one a lot. So, uh, yeah, that's the brief premise to me. Uh, (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) We're going to leave it there. So this was directed by Nobuhiku Obayashi. Screenplay by Chiho Katsura. Story by Obayashi's daughter, Chigumi Obayashi. And produced by Obayashi and Yorihiko Yamada. In our cast, we have Kamiko Igagami as Gorgeous. Miki Jinbo as Kung Fu. Ai Matsubara as Prof. Kamiko Oba as Fantasy, Miko Sato as Mac, Masayo Miyako as Sweet, Eriko Tanaka as Melody, and Yoko Minamita as Auntie. That's the cast. Uh, and what a cast. I mean, I you know, again, uh, I, got, I have a lot of respect for this movie. All right. So uh, why uh, House is Known or Not Known? Uh, I went into this under the being informed that this was in the criterion collection, that this was um, a classic film um, usually by film people, film buffs, uh, film historians, uh, cinema people. Um, I I think my bias to, to the reaction to this film is very apparent. Um, And I'm, I'm really looking forward to engaging with Sean here. Um, why it's not known. I think that's definitely for me. Uh, you know, to say that it, it comes across as unattractive or intimidating or, um, in your face, in your face, uh, is a bit of an understatement. It's in a way I'm still processing this film. It's very, um, I didn't know what to expect and I want to give it a lot of respect. Um, so I think why it's known is for uh, film viewers like myself who uh, probably judge a book by its cover a bit too much. Um, I'm guilty of that. Um, who have heard from their movie watching friends, uh, a reaction that goes, have you seen house? And it's just like this, this empty, um, you know, I feel like I'm going to get tricked. I feel like I'm going to watch uh, something like. Uh, what's what's the one where they go in the 
you know, the one I've been telling you about recently, the one that makes me nervous. It was very disturbing. What, Onibaba? No, no, no. The uh, the bear. They put the they open the bear. Oh, Midsommar. Up. Midsommar. Yeah, Midsommar. I feel, yeah, I, they're in the same vein. I could see that. You think so? I sincerely felt as though I was gonna watch something disturbing, um, and I, it kind of was. Uh, but uh, I think the um, the nostalgia factor is going to kick in heavy for me when we get to that shot. I guess I can give the facts about why it's known to Japanese audiences because it was a hit in Japan. To American audiences, I first learned of it in 2009, which will kind of blur into the nostalgia factor. But Janus Films acquired the distribution rights. They were just going to print it as a DVD. And then there are somebody around their team said, hey, maybe we should put it in theaters and see what happens. So they tested it out in New York and then kind of did a national tour. So it came to Nashville in the summer of 2009 as a midnight movie at the Belcourt Theater. And that's is that how is that how you first watched it? That's how I know it. That's where the poster that everybody knows of the orange cat is from 2009. It was designed by Sam Smith, who's a musician and graphic artists in Nashville. And Sam Smith would always design posters for the midnight movies at the Belcourt. So that's why it's known, I guess, for the most part by American audiences. So that one sheet is made by a Nashvillian? Yep. Wow. I did not know that because I in, in my little brief research, I saw what looked like a stark contrast between that one sheet and release time. Back in 77. Yeah, the original one sheet is like an image of a house with a giant tongue coming out of the mouth of the house. Jumping into gut reaction. Lay it on me. Lay, okay, yeah. I think I deserve to go first on this one. <laughs> you go first. You go first. <laughs> yeah. So, Sean, ah, again, you know, just kind of pulling from, pulling from uh, my little intro earlier, I was a bit nervous to go into this one um, and, and without getting into setup so much with 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 my reaction. Uh, let's just say reaction. Huh? <laughs> OK, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was I saw a YouTube video within the last year or so made by uh, a creator out there and I believe I believe the title of the video was movies that people love and I just don't get something along those lines. And I couldn't identify more with such a video title or such a topic of discussion. I always feel and I've always felt growing up that there's this these classic films that the public or, or, or the, the majority of, of audiences out there say are incredible amazing oh my god you know and it comes down to like a matter of of well it comes down to a matter of taste i think that there's an informed viewer out there i think that there's um i'd be lying if i didn't say that i think some people just kind of go with the crowd and and just agree to agree because i didn't hate this movie i didn't love it and i found myself really trying 
to a do one thing that was impossible is put myself in the time it was released. I wasn't born yet. Uh, yep. And B putting myself at a much younger age that I could have seen this movie because I think the reaction in the nineties, had I seen it somehow in the nineties versus even my twenties in the two thousands would be a big difference. Um, I think maybe you went into it trying to take it seriously, which I don't think is the best way to watch it. Hmm. Cause like I, like I said, I saw it at midnight, you know, in a group of drunk people at a movie theater. Um, so yeah, it's in the Criterion Collection, but it's it's not. Uh, I don't think it tries to be like you know a Godard movie or something. It's <sighs> it's definitely its own thing, and uh, it's just it's weird. It's absurd. Did you did you laugh at any moment? Oh yeah, and I think you I think you said it right there. It's absurd. Um, you know, I like to the we've discussed the way that we go into viewing these films. You know, to 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 find our flow for our program here. And, you know, I go in with my, I have my legal pad right here. Um, and I try to view it, you know, once or twice. And I, I try to keep an even balance of the notes I want to take because I've, I've definitely discovered writing down notes while watching the movie is a bit distracting. It's not, um, it, it's tough. It, it you, you miss a few things. I found myself constantly rewinding rewinding and that that just interrupted the flow of the film for me and i wanted to give it its its respectful view um so i'll tell you this i thought that this film was going to be something different not because of um yourself and other friends who have sort of touched on it or sort of like recommended it or pushed it out there for me um simply based on how it opened up i thought this was completely going to be about gorgeous and her uh, and this new um, uh, stepmother that her yeah. uh, that her father had introduced to her. I was like, oh, okay, that's what we're going into, you know. And and looking at the one sheet, looking, you know, this was uh, we we both watched this on HBO Max. It's streaming on there. Looking at the, I guess the streamer one sheet version of this, which is uh, a screen capture of Kung Fu. Right? Was that Kung Fu with the? Yeah, it was Kung orange- Fu. With yeah. all the like orange and black. I don't know. Is it dead people behind her or something? Oh, yeah. It was like skeletons and stuff. I, I saw and I said, you know, man, this is going to be interesting. This is the if it is scary, if it is horror, it's going to be I think it's going to freak me out because there, there are gems out there and just incredible pieces of cinema that get you. You know, I mean, to this day, I'm still scared of that wolf in the never ending story. It literally gives me goosebumps. No, yeah. and and I thought I was going to see something disturbing here, but then I was just really thrown off with um, the the introduction of uh, this new mother figure for Gorgeous. You know, I had taken a note down that her mother died eight years prior. You know, and trying to keep up, but um, tying this in to um, to gut reactions. Oh well, this is gut reactions. Yeah, is we're the in first, it. The first thing that struck that struck uh, stuck out to me was set design and um your production design like just the sets you know you it's 77 we weren't around then but just trying to empathize with the filmmakers and what they were attempting to do and 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 how limited storytelling was but yet how unlimited it was i mean audiences like what had they seen before at the time you know 
Um, I think we had uh, Star Wars was 78, right? It was no, right it was 70, 77 as well. Ah, OK. Well, you well, I don't know about release time. Was this right before it, right after it? Do you know? Uh, I mean, of course, you know, in Japan, they didn't have quite the the financial resources that Hollywood had. Let's see. This released July 30th, 1977. And I know Star Wars came out in 77 in the US. Regardless to make the to make the point, I think that I feel that if I was uh, I mean, shoot, like how old would I have have to have been to be able to see this? Uh, you know, let's say I was uh, a teenager in 77. So yeah. you know, obviously, what have I seen before then? We're talking you know, even years prior, I guess I'm a little envious of people that got to see it back then. That's what I'll say. So that that will that could sum up my gut reaction is I wish I could have seen it either in its release in my teens or even my early teens. Or I wish I had stumbled across it like I stumbled across so many other films in the 90s when I was young, because, again, I, I'm envious of people who had the opportunity to see this back then. Um, and even in the 90s. So I think that sums up my gut reactions is uh, set design. Um, I thought the story was going to be a bit different. Yep. And I also wrote down in camera transitions. And that made me think of Star Wars, which I'll bring Star Wars back to this is um, what had people seen before? What did they already have? I mean, we had the birds was, I think, 62 or something. It was quite earlier. Um, yep. and, and, and I thank you for, I, I really do thank you for pushing this one on me because, you know, we're, we're designing our, our, uh, viewing, uh, programming. <laughs> and this was, I think this was a great choice, Sean. So I'm going to shut up for now. I'm probably going to interrupt you. Let's go into your gut reactions. Yeah. I think this is a challenging film, uh, for anybody. And that's what I like about it. You're not going to you're not going to see this whole movie and say that was boring. There's you know, there's so many interesting aspects to this and I'm just drawn. I'm drawn to all of that. I guess gut reaction based on a rewatch is like it was even crazier than I remember. Like the camera work, the editing is like all over the place. So much of it, it feels like it's motivated by like emotion or by having like a childlike perspective in like a Western horror movie, you know, there might be like some creaking in the house or something, but like, no, the, the second they get there, the chandelier is attacking them. <laughs> and, uh, I have that written down. I have yeah, that the chandelier down. attacks. And then the auntie doesn't react at all to that happening. She's like, Oh, do you like piano? It's, <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know. That just like really sticks out to me. And this is just like a horror thing in general, but it really stuck out to me. Like the amount of gaslighting that's in horror movies where like someone clearly experiences one thing or they like sees something horrible happen. And then everyone else is like, no, that didn't happen. Uh, you were just a daydreaming. You know, you just imagine that. And like this, it really stuck out in the, in this movie. Cause like, you know, some characters even, would see something crazy themselves and they wouldn't trust their own experience. You know, I have to, I got to interrupt you there. I, I am, I'm going to meet you halfway. I agree and, and slightly disagree in an effort to, to make the point that there's something I liked there that they did while, while 
I agree that there's a bit of gaslighting. This reminds me of another recent viewing from a good friend of ours. I saw John Carpenter's The Thing recently for the first time. Oh, it's, wow. some, it's one of those that I skipped out on. I don't know why, but I did had always recognized scenes from it. And one thing that I loved about that film is that all our characters see the thing or see the monster or see the, the whatever yep. at the same time. And there's not this, you know domino one by one they all fall and the other one doesn't believe the other one so i think that that happened a little bit here with the girls um but also uh, they kind of doubted each other and i wonder if that's by design and by a a a tough language barrier so I, i i have to interrupt i'm wondering how much of this film has been lost in translation almost literally to american viewers because foreign languages sometimes translations are exact word by word and certain expressions or um, colloquialisms and other languages just simply aren't translated to another language so i'm curious if there were some things that were just off there yeah i mean i feel like so much of this movie is visual so i would i was almost feeling like this movie doesn't need dialogue uh, at certain points, you know, a lot of the dialogue is pretty like cliche and, and silly, which is good. I, I enjoyed it. I laughed, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's never a moment where they say, should we leave? You know, you get that in other horror movies. Like maybe we should get out of the house. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, maybe I feel like they didn't have anywhere to go. Or even like when Mac is, Mac is gone mac just disappears mm-hmm. and uh, uh fantasy knows what happened to mac because she was holding her decapitated head <laughs> and then it was like and then everyone told her that didn't happen but uh you know they didn't leave the house to go look for mac or anything i have a question was these was the introduced stepmother at the beginning who is not even in the film until the very end again was her name ryoko ryoko was that the character because that's what uh, i wrote down I think she's only referenced by name once. Yeah. Ryoko. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we need to accept that we need to stay in gut reaction just a little bit longer. Um, I Again, I thought this was going to be about gorgeous, but I was pleasantly surprised that we had more girls in here, um, <laughs> more characters in here. Uh, yeah. I have to ask you, did you notice a shift from and, and this had to be the uh, the restoration or the. uh or maybe on purpose, did you notice a bit of a shift in the schoolyard scene before they went on the trip from SD to HD? No, I didn't notice that. Okay, yeah. I, I feel like I'm going to scrub through this one again for the hell of it, and, and I, I I would I hope that you can come back and tell me if you if you notice that. Well, I would say... It, it might either A, be HBO Max and coding it weird, or like your internet connection mm-hmm. s- slowly picking up on the HD, or... It could be that uh, they shot like the early part in like 16 millimeter and then the rest in 35 or something like that. I think that's what it could be. I, I, I see just a different texture. Um, and, you know, I mean, in the future we can like pull up these things and, you know, talk about them. But uh, I wrote that down. Um, I agree with you on the visuals or it being more of a visual movie. I think that there was a few messages they were trying to get um, uh, conveyed in front of the screen. I, I I felt as though we the the music was 
so close in being a single theme throughout the whole film. This little yep. piano, bing, bing, you know, it, it reminds me of another film we recently talked about, Munchie. Shout out to Munchie with its just continuous little theme. Yeah. We keep picking these films with these little tunes. I felt like it came in at the right time every time as a symbol. Yeah, it worked. Uh, yeah, sometimes you don't need to have a hundred themes or a theme for each character. And it was like the arrangement was different. There might be different instrumentation, mm-hmm. but it always, yeah, always felt good. Felt like it worked. I'm looking forward to what you're going to talk about in, in research, because I feel like you have a bit more uh, regarding the, the, uh, the audiences overseas. Um, but I just, I think this film triggers so many questions for me and it's not questions of like, I want, I need this explained. It's not that. I, I just I think I want to understand it better, or at least I want to understand uh, interpretations of it better, you know, because, again, it's it's criterion, you know. It's, yeah, it's, I think that's good. I think I think that's why, you know, obviously it was like a it was a Japanese blockbuster, quote unquote. It was a huge hit um, and it was kind of designed to be that in a way. But also it. It does raise questions, and that's kind of like, in my mind, what makes it a quote-unquote art film is, you know, it makes you think. Even though it's, you know, it's it can be zany and bonkers and still make you think. Ask questions like, what does this mean? What is, What am I supposed to be feeling? I think that's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, I, I was trying to pay attention to a lot of the, um, what I believe were just more cultural behaviors even though it was a bit zany and it was uh you know the type of film that it was i still feel that there was i don't know i i like that the characters had um were pretty liberal in their um like in their behaviors i mm-hmm. noticed some sexist things you know but I, you know that comes with the territory in terms of like the time yep. uh, in, in particular uh, with them fawning over, was it Mr. Togo? Yeah. Yeah. They kept like referring to him like, Oh, don't worry. He's going to be our, our knight in shining armor. That's going to come save us. He's going to save us. Yeah. And the poor bastard just, he, he, uh, he doesn't, you know, no, <laughs> he turns into bananas. <laughs> exactly. And he's, I don't know. I feel like the setup was a bit deceiving, but I'm not complaining about it. Yeah. And I, th- and I think it works really well, um, to transition into, um, into this, this house of horrors. I, I'm, I have questions about the editing. Uh, I, I would not mind hearing a director's commentary on this. You know, I, I, the more we talk about it, the more curious I am about it. And, um, you know, in our very minor discussions before we get into this, when we record, uh, I I kind of wanted to complain to you about. It. I wanted to say hey, I kind of didn't like this, but you know, but <laughs> but I am enjoying talking about it. So uh, I'm sure we can fuse more gut reactions into this. Uh, shot number one, circle takes. Shot number two, best quote. Shot number three, does it hold up? Shot number four, weird history. Shot number five, how would you reboot this? Shot number six, what would make this better? Shot number seven, who used to be a theater actor? Shot number eight, nostalgia factor. Shot number nine, non-white casting. Don't know if that one applies here. (laughs) So 
Uh, let's jump right, jump right into it, uh, Sean. I, I I went first on gut reaction. Um, how about you go first on your circle takes? What was your circle take? My circle take. So this is uh, you know my favorite scene. This is uh, or maybe the scene I, I think of the most when I think of the movie. It's when uh, Blanche, the white cat, jumps on top of the piano and starts singing. It's like. <laughs> How did it go? <laughs> that's pretty close to the tune. That's, uh, you know, that's just like super representative of this movie. It's got the cat. It's got the the man eating or person eating piano. Yeah, that's that's a circle take for me. What about you? I had um, that. I had two. Um, the um, but I, I think the one. Yeah, I wrote down cat attack and one when they enter the house, uh, even though it wasn't a cat attack. It was just it was the chandelier scene where the cat almost kung fu jumps across the room and lands. Uh, but yep. the, but my other circle tag, if not the winner, was I wrote down watermelon eyeball scene when uh, when the auntie um, is eating the watermelon and she she winks. Yeah, no, she opens her mouth and the eyeballs and there's is it Max eyeball? I think so. Yeah, that's yeah. what's implied. It, yeah, that's what's implied. So uh, that was definitely like that was it was memorable. It was oh yeah, like I was like oh you know like the film is it's seventy seven. We're in two thousand twenty one. I mean, it you have to appreciate and respect what they did and what they could do back then, you know, and where their imagination took them in, in terms of like freaking you out. So again, I, I, I kind of touch back on gut reactions and I say, how would I have reacted to this in the nineties? You know? Um, and I, I think that would have been a bit freaky. I hadn't seen anything like that. I'll never forget Godfather one with the, when I saw the horse head in the bed, remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was seventies, right? There you yeah. go. I mean, yeah. an- another thing is, uh, maybe this is hard to believe, but the market for this movie was children. <laughs> Japanese children? Yeah. Oh. Well. Okay. Did it have a rating, Sean? Do you know? I don't know if they did ratings back then. Obviously, yeah. they're they're a little less puritanical about nudity and things like that. So, it was it was like... This was a movie you'd bring your children to. I think I had another circle take, though. Um, Three circle takes. Yeah. It's not even a circle take anymore. Yeah. I wrote down. Oh, oh, oh. Um, now, this is one of the characters names was Sweet. Correct. Yep. Correct. Sweet. Yep. Her pillow attack. I loved that uh, scene. That was my circle take because. You know, it, they got so creative with this. They just yeah. went all out with how they were going to shoot this and what they were going to do with it. And it was it was, as you said, bonkers and zany and all that. Did you did you see in the pillow her pillow attack scene when they put the camera under like a glass floor so that they right. could they had yeah. like a glass floor and they still had like painted lines on it to kind mm-hmm. of suggest like, you know, wood wood flooring or yes. s- or some kind of. Yeah, that's a really good uh example of how this movie is just like thinking out of the box at all times 
Yeah. And, and simultaneously, I, in the setup, I, uh, like in the very, the very opening scene, um, when they, it's the, it's gorgeous father and her. <laughs> and then you see this, what looks like a flat in theater come in, you know, I'm thinking like, what am I watching? You know, this like two to old school, three dimensional, like layering. It was, it was interesting, but, and it was, it was obviously, um, what do they call those matte paintings? Yep. Yeah. It was, it was just that and it seemed a little cheap, but it had me. And then you get pretty advanced and creative with this um, under a, under a glass uh, um, scene like you're like the camera is on the floor watching her getting attacked by the pillows. Yep. Um, very creative. Very cool. I'm very curious about uh, shooting schedule and how long this took to shoot. Uh all right, moving on. Next shot. Best quote. Uh, I'll, I'll go first on this one. All right. Uh, you know, and, and this goes back to my last point about translation. I, I I feel like something else was implied or something else was meant in this. But I just I wrote down what was on the screen on the subtitles. And uh, I just wrote down this cat's eating a lizard. <laughs> I, th- I thought it was a, a cute, funny shot. Um, and then I, another one I wrote down was a uh, white dreams on board. And I believe that was the title of the bus that they were on, on the way to, uh, to the town where the house was. Uh, okay. Do you remember that? Is that, I a, saw is that, that a line of dialogue or that was just a translation for the bus? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I it I think it was. I think it was just translation for the bus. Um, but I'm gonna count it as my best quote. <laughs> okay, my I'm gonna count uh, it as my best quote. Okay, my best. Oh, oh, you got another one. Sorry, got yeah, I have another one. I'm sorry. I have more. Go ahead. Um, I think this actually uh, summed up the whole thing. I don't remember who said it. Can such things happen in this world? That is good. Yeah, it does capture a lot of the feeling. My my best quote is in the courtyard. Kung Fu is having a Kung Fu fight with like flying <laughs> logs and fire. Yes. Yes. And then after it's over, she says, this is ridiculous. Yes. Yes. I remember and that. She says, maybe it was an illusion. And then she just kind of like walks away. I'm silent clapping right now because I don't want to. I don't want to do the yeah, overload the mic. And then my my second favorite line, I think maybe it's sweet. Or uh, fantasy talking about Gorgeous's father. And she says, your dad is the best. He's a film composer and rich. Yeah, I remember that. I remember I'm that. Like, I this is like the some... best expositional dialogue, you know? What? Well, you think that was some shameless plugging? No, it's just to like, you know, expositional because it's like, you know, it's telling us uh, like a, you know, character detail rather than just showing us, you know, it's not like they showed him at the piano composing a film score or something. It's just like, oh yeah, he's a film composer and rich. <laughs> I know. I agree. Um, I agree. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be sentimental right now and just tell you that I am actually, I'm enjoying reviewing this one, uh, talking about it right now. We, you and I had communicated during the week and I, I think I'd mentioned to you, um, seeing this the day before we talk about it and seeing it a few days before they both have pros. Um, I saw this, um, this is a Saturday. I saw it, um, on a Monday of this, of this week. And it, it, it stuck with me the whole week. It really did. 
Um, in particular, that last quote, can such things happen in this world? So uh, that's my way of capping off uh, shot number two. Does it hold up? Does it hold up? It's an interesting question. I'm blurring into weird history a little bit. Obayashi intended for this movie to look fake. He could have, you know, gone to a balcony and shot Gorgeous and her dad on an actual balcony, but he didn't want that. He wanted everything to look fake. Studio Toho is is who made the Godzilla movies, and he could have used their special effects crew. Like, that was offered to him, but he refused and decided, no, we're just going to make it up as we go along. And, and that's where, like, a lot of the imagination comes out in this movie is because they're not trying to look, make it look real. They don't want it to, to even feel real. So that's in that aspect, like, in terms of, like, talking about does it feel dated or not, it still feels fresh to me because it's still, I don't think there's been, like, a Hollywood movie that's, like, this this bonkers it still feels bonkers to us like it doesn't feel like oh i've seen this before like you know all of these things that they're doing you know so that's why i would say it, it still holds up so we're in 2021 what how long has passed since you did your is this your only your second rewatch of it or um uh, or have you have you sprinkled it in your for your viewing pleasure over the years yeah i've sprinkled it in over the years so how much time has passed since you first saw it and now? 2009 to 2021. So what's that, 12 years? Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. I'm 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 intrigued by your reactions as well here. Uh I agree. Well, I would say that it does it hold up? It depends. Depends <laughs> on who you are. <laughs> you know, simply put, it depends on who you are. Um you know, 70 cinema was uh by regarded by most as uh like the ultimate classic time and era you know it was um it was a special time and i think that because of of gems like this you you just you're all over the place and it was it was a great time for filmmaking and and everyone's imagination was taken was very well respected and understood i think yeah and interpreted um in so many different ways uh i i purposefully didn't do too much research on this because i I really feel that discussing it in this in this raw manner has a lot of um i don't know has a lot of value and i'm I'm kind of like relearning about it myself um you know to your point about toho right there i think this was the evolution well, I think this was a turning point for Toho, um, not even seeing too many of their releases, but knowing uh, some about them. You know, my favorite of them being Godzilla 1985, which has its own interesting little controversy. They you can kind of tell it's Toho. I'll say that. Like I when I saw that and then I'm watching I'm like, oh, yeah, it kind of feels like it, you know. Yeah, they and it's good when an, when an, an entity can do that, an organization can you know, like, oh, this feels like a Orion film, right. you know, or a Carol Co. Or Marvel um, Studios. Exactly. Um, and that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, I think it's impressive. Um, so does it hold up for me? I don't know if I just, I don't think I can answer it, right? Because it's my first viewing, so. True. We don't, we don't uh, know if you would have enjoyed it in 1977. Okay, let's be let's be uh, let's be raw, and ask uh, another question. Would I have would I have thought it was 
boring or weird in the 90s as a kid watching it? I think so. I think sadly that like my palate hadn't been, you know, matured or developed enough to appreciate it. And and not that a viewer should feel forced to appreciate sure. it. I think that's part of the struggle uh, that I've kind of had with some of my viewings. So, um, yeah. At the same time, only a good handful of people have actually discussed this film with me. And I just sort of like, oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, it does it hold up. All right. Um, I think the the best uh, kind of metric for does it hold up or not is like, would I recommend it to someone else? You know, like if something doesn't hold up, then in my mind, it's, it's a waste of your time. But if it does hold up, if it's worth watching then I would say yes. I think the originality of it holds up. Yeah. For sure. Um, Because there's so many, I think there's so many ways you could chop that up in terms of um, discussion points about production and how it was made and how they executed the story. Yeah. Um, And then I think the things you said about like possible sexism with the knight in shining armor, like I think that stuff was intentional. I think that was like an intentional irony set up because it, you know, the filmmakers know that this guy's not going to save them. No, no one can save you from, you know, the pain of heartbreak that consumes them all of never having your your uh, lover come back from the war. Wow. You uh, I, I think you you hit a, a, a golden uh, coin right there. Theme heartbreak. That's a that's a good one, I think. I think that encompasses this whole thing. It's, it's, it's like a letdown, you know, like uh, gorgeous is, is let down that her father is moving on, that her mother's no longer in her life. You know, she's heartbroken. Uh, I think they're all heartbroken by, by the not so great vacation they had. Yep. Uh, yeah, that, that was very impactful, Sean. I think heartbreaking is, uh, is absolutely correct. Um, you know, something else you, you mentioned uh, triggered something here. Just give me a second. Um, oh, Oh, yeah. So the sexism, I mean, they're all girls, you know, did the filmmakers do that to uh, exploit just cute girls and get viewers? Because, I mean, if we get into if we get into like the version of clickbait back then, you know, you had Kung Fu running around in her underwear would look like a a swimsuit bottom. Yeah. Um, But yet these girls, they all have. Talents, they all have, um, you know, they're not they're not dainty. They're not weak characters. They have a, a bit of ambition. They're all positive, you know, and they're all protecting each other. Um, and our, I didn't write down the line, but I do remember at the end, towards the end, one of them said to each other, like, the equivalent of like, we have to be optimistic. We have to believe that we can win this and we can survive. Yeah, yeah it's essential for survival. And that's that's not... You know, even like the the nudity is to a minimum. And I think that this, if this was trying to be sexist and exploit uh, just women, it would have been more rampant. Yeah, I could see that. Weird history. Uh, you want me to take the lead on this one? Please, please. Because I only have like one thing that I discovered that was interesting about this. But go ahead. All right. Well, our our good friends at the Christian Movie Guide did not review this movie. Uh, But if they had, I think that they might have said that it accurately portrays the dangers of dabbling in the occult. 
uh, <laughs> and uh, content warning for cats vomiting blood. Uh, I have the Criterion channel as something I subscribe to. Uh, this movie is also on there with like a 45 minute interview with the director where he kind of talks about the whole thing. I don't mm-hmm. know if you saw that. Did you see that? Did not see that. Did you did you read any of the production backstory on Wikipedia? I I did. The and that's my contribution here. Is the thing that stuck out to me the most was how he was trying to um or his his I don't know if it was a goal or ambition, but was to like bring attention to um the bombing, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the atomic bombings. Yeah. Um and I kind of when I when I saw that, I said the execution of this film is an interesting way to express that awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I think really. So at, at the beginning, he was asked to make something that would be a hit like Jaws because Jaws is, you know, kind of the first blockbuster. So in Japan, they asked him to make something like Jaws. And uh, he kind of in the interview, he says, children come up with things that can't be explained. So the first thing he did is went to his 10-year-old daughter and asked her what would she find, you know, what does she find scary? What is she scared of? So that's why the the 10-year-old daughter gets a story credit on this movie is because, like, so many images, like, it'd be scary to look in the mirror and have your reflection attack you. The daughter went to their went to her grandparents' house and they didn't have a refrigerator, so they had to put a watermelon in the well. And when they brought the watermelon back up, the daughter thought it looked like a decapitated head like like so many of these things just come from like obayashi's daughter's nightmares which i think is really interesting but then going back to what you said about the bomb and having the atomic bomb as a theme he also wanted to like tie that into how the younger generation who were born after the war and that's kind of represented by the young girls they they didn't know the horrors of war so to him, they were just kind of living in a fantasy world where they didn't know any like real pain, real tragedy, real heartbreak. And that's why he designed everything to look so fake, even the special effects, just to kind of show symbolically like this is the bubble they're living in. You know, they don't know they don't know real shit. Yeah, it's all like manufactured um, and sort of um <clears throat> like a lack of exposure. And I, th- I think that that was, you know, conveyed in the story with some of their, some of their little, I guess, dreams and hopes or, or ambitions for the summer were sort of, you know, condensed, like they were limited. They, they didn't have, um, but at the same time, they, they wanted to go on this trip, you know, like they, um, they were sort of like, you know, all for one, one for all type of multiple musketeers. I don't even know the full number of cast here, but, um, I feel like I just went on a weird tangent there. Uh, one other thing I noted from from the Wikipedia was the um, how no other director wanted to uh, direct the film, and that he, um, Obayashi wasn't allowed to because he wasn't an, he wasn't employed by Toho. Exactly. <laughs> he, yeah. And I think that ties into what you were saying about well, if I was to if I would dare get into his mind with the intentional cheapness of the look. I kind of see that as like, well, let me just cut my losses and, you know, do it like this. Be a little abstract, be a little artsy fartsy. Uh, I'm not losing much money. I'm not really too worried about the career and what comes out of it comes out of it. Yeah. 
So that's my interpretation. Yeah, it took him it took him two years to get it made, even though they like bought his concept and asked him, you know, to to bring this to put this idea forward. Like you said, no other director wanted to do it. So uh Obayashi went and, and turned House into a manga, a novelization. They made the soundtrack album for the film before the film even came out. Uh, and it was like they did a radio play where they read through the screenplay. And that's kind of like what was the final push to make the film made because it was such a popular uh, radio drama. Kind of reminds me a little bit about the production notes on RoboCop 3. Hmm. Supposedly, uh, I, I know it's another film, but I'm just going to put it out there. We... Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of like backwards making or backwards filmmaking. Um, I was watching a little documentary about how they made the video game for that. And they were making the video game and there was still no finished script to the film. Mm-hmm. So they, they didn't know what the storyline was. Um, and I think that's interesting is I, I would like to get into the mind of the creatives who are put in those constraining creative flows. You know, like, you know, it's kind of like, like, hey, let's make a movie. Um, okay, what do you want to make? Oh, well, I want to do this. I don't know about that. You know, it's almost like they were singing for their supper, sort of. Yep. But they had to create a proof of concept, you know, and then this the 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 financiers, it's like, oh, uh, you know, they just they seem like non-committal. A lot of the girls were the actresses in the film were were models that he had worked with on TV commercials because most most he had done some short films, but most of the work he was doing with, were TV commercials. Um, so he like would meet them on commercials and be like, "I'm working on House. I promise you, it's gonna happen." Uh, and and only the actress who played Gorgeous actually had any acting experience, mm-hmm. which you can which you can kind of tell like. You know, it's a little bit like stilted in the acting, but it also like works to the effect of like, this is not real. Like, this is clearly fake. You know, it kind of all works together, I think. It's like a wild bar graph, you know, some some uh, metrics were just through the roof uh, and unlimited on what they wanted to do. And then some things like, like you said, with the acting was, you know, stilted, but is that important to us? Eh, you know, and same with, um, you know, with like, we wanted to look cheap, but then I remember that there was a bit of, um, there was some, what I guess would be considered advanced filmmaking uh, back then with like the, the graphic of the cat or like the cartoon Organization, uh animation portion in there you yeah, know they I, mean, did I don't a lot think of that like, was cheap they did a lot of composite work they did a they did the first shot that uses uh like tv video technology mm-hmm. uh when prof is like dissolving into the blood they used a like a video camera for that instead of film uh yeah so there's like yeah like a lot of really original cool stuff going on it saved itself. It had a lot of good balance in, in different points. It didn't. I, I wrote down a note that I wanted to ask you about later. This isn't my questionable question, sure. but I, I was wondering if you noticed a weird lull during the midpoint montage of the film. And uh, I think that just goes a bit more with story, like what was going on there. But I don't know, something that just came to mind. Yeah. And uh, like I said, it was a it was a hit in Japan, but critics hated it. 
they thought it was going to destroy like all of Japanese cinema. Uh, they just thought it was like, you know, going to bring about a death to cinema, which you hear all the time. Like you hear all the time, like, oh, Marvel movies are killing cinema. Uh, mm-hmm. Westerns are killing cinema. That's what they were saying here in the 50s and 60s. Like, but it's, it, you know, the medium still prevails. And you and I both come from a theater background where people have been saying theater is dead for thousands of years and it, it still keeps kicking. I, I, I don't subscribe. Again, another reason why I didn't read too much about the movie. I'm not a fan of the Rotten Tomato crap. I, I can't deal with that. Um, I guess I can understand its efficiency, but I just don't know if I could take someone else's word for granted on such a subjective um, uh, art. You know, it's, yeah. it's come on. Like it's going to be your your interpretation. You know, some people are going to love it, hate it, kind of like it. It's it's extremely subjective. So yeah, exactly. Um, I, I want to ask you, though, um, I think this I think using weird history as sort of a good q and I think that kind of works right here. And I wanted to ask if you knew anything about um, or if your weird history uh, revealed anything about the length of time it took to shoot the actual film. That I do not know. OK. Did it say anything about um, what American audiences thought? American audiences didn't see it until like 2009. So unless you were like, you know, some underground person with a bootleg VHS copy that you shipped from Japan and it didn't have subtitles, you know. So I know that Rotten Tomatoes has it at like a 90 percent. Like you said, it's kind of a bogus metric, but it seems like when it did finally come out here that American critics enjoyed it. Had you heard about it before the first time you saw it? No. I saw, like, I was at the Bell Court watching another movie and saw the trailer for it. And the trailer is, like, super entertaining. So, the trailer is, yes. I saw that right before we started recording today, and I felt as though the, the trailer had quite a bit of momentum. It almost, I want to say the film itself saves itself quite a bit um, in in the making of it. Like, you... You know, just when you think, or at least for me, just when I thought that I was about to get a little uh, distracted or maybe not interested, something else happens. And I think that that goes with the whole, as I mentioned earlier, the the wild bar graph, you know, they um, it carried me, you know, and this this goes to holding up. Does it hold up? Yeah, I, I think so. As a, just an interesting film, aside from my little weird lull during the midpoint montage is something I wrote down. Um, yeah, that's uh that's that's how I feel about it. All right. How would you reboot this? You know, you said something on one of the other shots, and uh, it it made me question. Yeah, why hasn't it been rebooted, or uh, has it been remade? Uh, is are there like loose interpretations of it? If people tried to pay homage to it, because I don't, I don't, uh, I think it stands alone. Uh, I don't see. Uh, too much that I think other filmmakers had borrowed from it. Um, you know, and, and I know people out there could be like, are you serious? People, people, that's inspiration for everybody, you know, like, fine, I get it. Yeah. But I, I haven't been so submerged in, in horror too much. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, yeah, I can't, so, uh, yeah, I can't think of like, uh, an earlier movie than this one where like the house eats people, you know, where it's like the house 
that's that's killing off people. Even if the house is like possessed by by a spirit or something, there's like there aren't too many movies that come to mind that are are doing that exact thing. Yeah, well, and and the house was is tied to the auntie, right? Exactly. And the auntie eats girls. Yeah, like she needs them to because she's alone, right? She's alone. Her the auntie eats uh, only unmarried girls and women. There you go. Which is which is why uh, the dad's fiance gets eaten at the end. You know, um, one of our classmates. Uh, you know, we both went to film school together. Uh, one of our classmates shared something with me uh, of about Asian culture. And I think it's interesting to point out here. And I'm wondering if what you said maybe has something to do with it. She told me that in, in parts of Asian culture, a woman is considered expired if she's not married by the age of 26. Don't know too much accuracy about that. Now don't want to offend anybody, but that is, and that's, thinking kind of exists in other places too. I mean, we grew up in the American South where there's that kind of same line of, you know, backwards thinking like, oh, if a woman's not married, you know, a lot of people we know probably got married like either during college or right after college or that happens a lot in the South or, or right after high school. So it's So do you think that do you think that maybe is tied into why she eats uh young girls um maybe maybe there's like you know some resentment for the youth that they got to have that she didn't get to have because she you know she was gonna she was gonna marry this guy and then lost him in the war and then she was just heartbroken the rest of her life so she didn't really get to have her her youth like these girls have where there's no war going on you know there's no there's none of that that yeah, that's a good point. I, I almost forgot about that scene completely, and that's uh, that's accurate. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. Um, so all right. So well, I think we got on a tangent about the actual shot. Would you reboot this? I would. I, I'd like to. I'd definitely like to see it rebooted. Just you know, done right, of course. Uh, you know, it, wow, that's that's hearts done right. Um. It depends on who's involved. Uh, I yeah. think we would definitely need um, the right people that want to pay homage to this. Um, I, I don't know if it's going to sound cliche, but you know, the man Jordan Peele. I think he. I think this could be right up his alley. I'd like to see him try to do something with with this uh, sort of story. Yeah, I think so. I I kind of saw it as you know, if I were going to reboot it. Uh, just because of what I know and I would, you know, set it in the U.S. Um, Obayashi kind of like kills off the young girls one by one because they don't know the pain of losing someone in a war. And I feel like that's kind of contrasted with our younger generation, the Zoomers. They were like born into 20 year long wars. So they've they've only ever known war. So... I think it might be interesting to like flip the script and have a niece who has uh, who's engaged to a soldier who goes off to Afghanistan and never comes back and her like Gen X or boomer aunt comes into town to visit her with all of her friends. And then it's kind of like the, uh, 
the house starts to eat them one by one. Because they've they've lived in peacetime. They know what that's like. They're kind of they're kind of divorced from the reality of, you know, of the war. I like it. Uh, it, While you were telling that to me, I realized I didn't answer the question. I thought it was, would you (laughs) the shot? Would you reboot this? It's how would you reboot this? this? (laughs) So I actually did think of of, um, a part of that in the viewing. And I think it'd be interesting to see instead of the house um, eating them one by one is the house enables each of them to eat each other (laughs) in a in a similar um, absurd fashion, the way, you know, like the piano, you know, I, th- I thought the the piano eating um, who, who was eaten by the piano? Uh, melody. It wasn't melody. That's yeah. Melody. Duh. Yeah. I thought that That's was right. uh, very, uh, you know, pun intended right there. Um, and I love the fingers, the fingers playing the piano. Yeah, keys. exactly. Uh, each, each sort of death had, had its own uh, tied theme to the character and um, I think it'd be cool to I don't know if what I suggested necessarily reverses that, but um, it just sort of switches up a few things. I'd want to see them being able to eat each other. Yeah. I mean, in, in my mind, like the reboot could still kind of like it, it would still be, have the absurdist elements. It would still be comedic. So like if it's the ants and her like old school friends coming to the country house, you know, it could be like Tiffany Haddish, Ali Wong, Kristen Wiig. You get, you get people who, who can, <laughs> who can make it funny as like these absurd things are happening. I think it could be Oof. good, but I, I would want to <sighs> still like find like some kind of message to convey, whether it's about like how we view war today or how different generations, you know, view that kind of thing. Oh man. And I don't I don't know about Kristen Wiig. I have to be honest. I, I feel like we just touched on a few different other shots, by the way. But uh, but I see what you mean, and, and I agree with with being able to identify the message. Um, that would be nice. Uh, it, the the comedy would be interesting because uh, I don't know if the brand of comedy that was in this even translates to anything today. Is there? Do you think? No, and. I mean, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a dry delivery of the lines. It kind of reminds me of like like Ghostbusters has a very like dry kind of like wry sense of humor that's not mm-hmm. like over the top, you know. And that's like in stark contrast to like how over the top all the all the imagery is. But like you know, the girls are just kind of like, oh, that was weird. All right, moving on. <laughs> yeah part of me uh, almost would want to see it <laughs> uh, just to be as absurd it's not called house it's called apartment you know <laughs> it'd be like a big apartment that eats everybody uh, i i do like you know the setting that it's kind of far away i think uh doing something you know similar but different works i mean you know now that i think about it have you seen um the Amityville Horror House. I think that's what it's called. Or whatever I've seen that the original horror Amity Horror. Uh, I think that came out in 79. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too. I I, I want to know if that sort of got inspired by this now that I think about it. Because that's the only other one I can sort of think of as far as like a haunted house goes. 
Yeah. Yeah, I know there was an animated movie like 10 years ago that was called Monster House. Mm-hmm. I think the the actual house was like a monster. You know, it was uh, also a kids movie. But uh, I haven't seen that in a while, so I don't know how much it may have borrowed from this if it did at all. You know, I I'll, I'll leave it I'll leave this shot with this or make a uh, reboot it for kids. Let's see someone actually try to make this. Oh, well, okay. With a Ren and Stimpy tone. Ren and Stimpy in the 90s was pretty, you know, pushing the envelope children's viewing. You know, I, I mean, I knew parents that didn't want their kids to see that, you know, and that was a bit that was all animated. So I think I would, uh, I'd like to also see a kid's version. So two reboots for me. Well, and maybe that's the difference between like Japanese and American audiences is I don't think a kid's movie or a kid's TV show or whatever could get greenlit here where all of the main characters die. Yeah. You know, (laughs) or get turned into bananas. It also kind of reminded me that, you know, we spoke on this earlier I think another one, again, we'd have to like talk to the filmmakers. There was a sequel to The Wizard of Oz called Return to Oz in the, I think it was the late 80s, early 90s. Um, it had a very young Feruza Balk in there. And uh, that kind of reminds me of this a little bit. I've never seen that one. That could be a, a future episode. All right, uh, next shot, moving on. Uh, we kind of touched on this already. Next shot, what would you do to make this better? Um, uh, you know, reminding myself that we're talking about this film as an entity and not necessarily part of a reboot. Yeah. How would I have made this better? I think I have more questions there than I have suggestions, as in I'm, I would like to know if the director had different cuts. Um you know, I, I would like to know if uh, how many drafts of the script uh, were out there, because I think I think the answer lies there. And and I don't I don't know if I could make a suggestion on on um, what would I do to make it better. Maybe again, without knowing, maybe ensure that the messages in the dialogue or excuse me, or that the dialogue is translated as best as possible to to tell the story because some of the dialogue, I was curious. I was like, is it really what they're saying? You know, uh, I don't know. That's a bit critical. I mean, there's a lot of English in the movie, like all of their names. If you're listening closely, they're saying like Mac, they're saying like sweet Yeah. They're saying, right. They're like saying fantasy. And he actually like gave the movie an English title house. Cause he was like, no one's going to make a movie with an English title. So I'll just, you know, screw the studio. I'll just give it an English title and see what happens. So that's hard to say. I think, obviously, I love this movie. I think it's a perfect experience for what it is. But like we talked about earlier with like Obayashi says the atomic bomb is is a major theme in this movie. I didn't get that just from watching the movie. I had to like listen to the interview. So for me, like, and it's the same reason I don't read the placard at the museum next to the painting before I look at the painting, it's because I feel like it should speak for itself. Like this, the movie should tell me that. And so maybe Mm -hmm. it's my own, you know, cultural difference that I didn't like catch on to it, but I would try to find a way to make that more obvious, you know, whether it's the aunt telling them, telling the girls like, 
you don't know my pain. You'll never know my pain. Maybe something like that. It's just like a simple line of dialogue that, at, you know, that's added in there towards the end. Because otherwise it, it just like we see like the flashback to the atomic bomb and like, you know, the soldier going off to war. But then it, it feels like we kind of forget about that for the rest of the movie. Thank you. I'm going to jump in right there. Um, yeah, you, you your answer triggered like, oh, yeah, I remember what I would do. <laughs> um I want to know, I felt like there was a different story going at the beginning with the introduction of the stepmother. And I think it was it was quite a bit abstract in even talking about her real mother's death, which was eight years prior. Um, You know, I'd like to go in the psychology of that and understand where that was going. And I felt as though I would I would sort of refocus this to be gorgeous's story because I think it was lost in there. I don't think that it just became about I don't excuse me. I don't think that it revolved around gorgeous as much as it could have and should have. Um, the other characters were interesting, but I felt like we just lose her gorgeous story like she got lost in the mirror. You know, um, I, you know, not not to always want everything explained to me, but I, I would kind of want to know a little bit more about the cat, you know, and maybe the origin of the uh, of the house and how how all that happened you're like where do these mystery powers come from and what does eating the girls do it reminds me of a star trek the next generation episode where these souls are stranded on this planet and um they just they eat they feed off of uh life forms that visit you know but they kind of had a a purpose it's because they were banished to to that planet you know so um yeah i I would want to know a bit more about that and I wrote another note down here. Uh, where is it? Let's see here. Oh, yeah. And I, th- this is definitely more in the editing. Um, towards the in the, the third act, there was uh, the I wrote down weird camera speed after finding gorgeous. After they find gorgeous, the, the camera almost goes uh, again to invoke Star Trek here. Whenever uh, the Enterprise goes into a wormhole, it gets into this very like shifty, you know, blurred, you know, slowed down uh, Im- implied uh, style of shooting. And it, it felt yeah, it's kind of laggy. It's like 12 frames per second. Right. And I mean, if that was demonstrative of you know emotion or what they were going through okay but i don't know it it didn't do it for me i would have i would have removed that mm. uh, and i also would have removed the uh there was like a music it was almost the equivalent of a music video in the middle of the film somewhere there was just like this song that seemed to be inspired by 70s music are you talking about when they like first get to the countryside and there's like big portraits of their faces introducing their characters and it feels like a sitcom maybe that was it yeah i think that was it yeah yeah there was another one that sort of happened around the schoolyard but it was it was less so uh yeah um character more uh, i don't know if it falls under character development but more you know character info yeah it's interesting what you said about uh having the movie be more about gorgeous cuz when i when i first saw it years ago i thought that like you know she goes off to the countryside to run away from the reality of, oh, my dad is marrying someone new and she's not my mother. And so in my head watching the movie the first time, it was like, okay, this whole thing with the house is just like a fantasy to her. And she's going to like picture like losing all of her friends 
And then at the end of the movie, she's going to like wake up and all of her friends are like still alive. And she's going to realize like, okay, it's not, I've seen, you know, I pictured all this horrific stuff happening to my friends. And so it's not so bad that I'm going to have to have a stepmother, you know? And then like, you know, everyone's still alive at the end of the movie. That's what I thought going into it. But that's, you know, that's also such a like, uh, such a Western viewpoint. <laughs> uh, true, true. Maybe I suffered from that as well. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I would have, uh, I would have liked that as well. Um, I think there was, uh, there was also uh, that seems to be the theme for me. It was like an introduction of a, of a plot or a, a character that just doesn't get resolved. Um, like for example, so Prof was that the. Was that the teacher in the schoolyard with the basketball? No. Okay. I kept thinking it was because. Prof is the girl with glasses who's there at the house the whole time. Oh, okay. I got. Yeah. So I felt as though that teacher character with the basketball went with them. It was hard for me to keep up. I don't think Um, so, because the teacher was talking about how she's about to get married or something. Right. And I thought that that was interesting because that was sort of tied into a few other themes that were going on there. Yeah. You know, and then Mr. Togo was talked about way more than he was seen. Um, So that that was that was kind of interesting to me. Next shot. Who used to be a theater actor? Uh, Yeah, no. Looking at our shots when we were going into this, I was like, I don't know if like two of these are going to apply (laughs) Uh, because we kind of covered this and we know the answer is uh, almost none of these had uh, actresses had experience except for Gorgeous, right? Yeah, Gorgeous and uh, Auntie Yoko Minamita. Um, I know she acted in in tons of films, but uh, Wikipedia didn't tell me whether she had acted in theater or not yeah i'll i'll say this though to to be to be technical about about the shot um i do think that her father uh the character of of uh, gorgeous's father he you know just kind of analyzing uh actors and actresses uh i think that he just kind of gave me a used to be a theater vibe he had a bit of a of a dramatic flair to him um so did mr togo and as far as the girls, yeah, I don't think any of them had. I don't think any of them used to be a uh, a theater actor. Or yeah. At least, yeah, it doesn't apply to the uh, to the shot. What What do you think? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. I know uh, the actress who who played Gorgeous, Kamiko Igagami. Apparently, she came from a long line of kabuki actors, so I'm sure she. I'm sure she did a, a little bit of theater before this. I could see that. Yeah, actually, now I could see that, and and it would make sense if I thought that her father had a bit of a theatery um, air to him. It would make sense to put her as as the daughter, two theater actors together. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, next shot. You want to take this one? Nostalgia factor. Um, yeah, I kind of already went into my backstory with this movie. Uh, saw it in 2009 in Nashville. I can't even, I, I think I must have gone and, and seen it with someone. I don't know if it was my older brother or, or who I saw it with, but the movie stuck with me. 
I watched this a lot over the years. I was a I was even a like a camp counselor to uh, teenagers uh, a couple times, and uh, I may have shown it to to one group of of teenage boys at a certain time. <laughs> it, oh and my. I didn't even uh, for some reason I forgot about all the nudity in the film. So it would just like cover up. We watched it on my laptop at like 11 PM in a, in a, you know, like in a cabin or something. I don't know. But, uh, and they loved it. Oh, how old were they? Maybe like 15, 16. Interesting. And this was the South. Yeah. Wow. That's a discussion right there. Go on. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have done that, but, uh, you know, I did a lot of things as a camp counselor. I, I probably shouldn't have done. I once, uh, <laughs> I once took some took some kids to the Church of Scientology because uh, there was like a bus to go to to your church of choice, and there were a bunch of kids. Oh there were a bunch of kids who didn't sign up to go to the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church. So uh, I was like, "Hey, let's go to Church of Scientology. Check that out." You know what? It's funny. Me and a buddy of mine, we uh, we went to the Church of Scientology on our very first trip to New York just because we wanted to see like what it was all about, uh, you know, being inspired by the all the discussion around it, you know, the the publicly known discussion around it. Uh, I am I am not interested in it. Yeah. So. Uh, so if you're any if you're the kids who I took or uh, the parents of the kids, I'm deeply sorry. But yeah, that's, I mean, the nostalgia factor, you know, it's a part of it, definitely. I mean, I love the Belcourt Theater in Nashville. I still try to go back there every time I'm in Nashville. There's just something about the the community and and they always had these uh, midnight movies scheduled where they'd have like a signature drink, signature cocktail. They'd have like the movie poster, uh, which would be custom made by Sam Smith or, or some other graphic artists so you know there's just something about the experience i i think about a lot and and kind of like wish like okay i wish i had something like that where i live now yeah um i didn't get to see but like maybe two films of the bell court and um a theater show there uh, it was matt and ben shout out to matt and ben uh they i think that i am experiencing the nostalgia factor of uh, of this film i feel that uh, you know in 10 years within the next 10 years i could see myself coming across it on streaming um and and just you know doing something i like to do which is a, a quick scrub you know yeah. going back to some memorable moments and and just fast forward and say i want to see that again i want to see that again you know i debated on watching it again the night before um but I chose not to. I wanted to go off of these notes right here. I think I felt like I would have overanalyzed it. But, um, you know, I go back to how we opened this and, and how we talked about this on some other shots. I I am envious of the people who got to view it uh, when it was released, probably at the within the teens age range. And I would like to have seen it um, in the 90s because I, I felt as though there was a uh, at least for me, there was a lot of films in the 90s that I probably shouldn't have seen at a young age. Uh, I take that back. In the early 90s, there was a lot of films I should not have seen yeah. at a young age that I am thankful that I was exposed to. Um, you know, whether it's disturbing imagery or just mature themes and content, I'm, I'm glad I got to see them. 
uh, you know, and I would have I would not have mind minded seeing this one. Yeah, I think the vibe of this is like perfect. Like watch it on a VHS. You know, maybe maybe if it can't, if it was accessible to us in the '90s, it would have been like dubbed with English voice actors or something. You know. Wait a second. I think I thought I did read that somewhere. Was there a version of this that was dubbed with English voices? I don't know. I thought I saw that. It could have been. It could have been the other film I did research on that um, I have to thank you uh, for because had you not have picked this. I don't know when I would have stumbled across the other film that I kept telling you about this week. So, Oni Baba. Um, Chris kept telling me Oni about Baba. Oni Baba. Yeah, you guys need to watch that. Yeah, I still need to watch it. I'm going to guess that it's nothing like this one stylistically at all, but who knows? Um, Well, I mean, it's it's got some... It does have one similar theme. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, non-white casting. Done. <laughs> we done. <laughs> we usually reserve this one uh, for American films that uh, don't have uh, diversity in them, but uh, this isn't that. So um, non-white casting. Maybe we could talk. I think you you touched on this a little bit in the how would you reboot this? Yeah. You know, putting some um, some modern actors in there. Should we say who? If there was a remake, who would be the Asian cast we would put in there? I mean, would it even take place in Japan, you know? Exactly. And would, because I'm sitting here thinking that all these actors and creatives were Japanese, right? Were they all Japanese? Because the Asian actors that I'm thinking of, I I, I got to be frank. I mean, it, it, it kind of highlights the shot. I don't know too many Japanese actors off the top of my head, um, you know, and, and maybe I'm betraying the, uh, the story by, by putting different Asian actors in yeah. there. I don't know. What do you think? Um, uh, I don't know. I think it's like, there's so many like questions we would have to ask ourselves. Like if, if we were like, when we talked about Munchie, it was like, okay, if we're still making it that year, who do we cast? Mm-hmm. And if if we're making it like in America in 1977, how many non-white actors do you know from that time, especially who were like could play teenage girls? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This because because they weren't in films and TV in 1977. We didn't have that kind of representation. So like, who do you- we had Sulu? We had Sulu. OK. <laughs> that was about it. Yeah. <laughs> and he was Japanese. Yeah. But he, he couldn't. I mean, he could play a teenage girl, but he probably wouldn't get the part. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, interesting. You know, this this did trigger. Um, here's what I think could tie this to the uh, the reboot remake. Um, so, you know, we had uh, I think it was 1991 or 1992. Ang Lee did The Wedding Banquet. Mm-hmm. And that film was uh, one of the. Uh, largest all Asian casts for a Western audience um, uh, before Joy Luck, Joy Luck Club, and then sadly Crazy Rich Asians. Right. And when they made those films, they um, oh, there was another one I saw recently that was produced by Will Smith's company that was great. Um, the title escapes me, but we'll 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 get into yeah. that. Um, the 
with the wedding banquet and and your joy luck club and your uh, your crazy rich Asians, you it does almost feel as though there's a pressure by the Asian filmmakers to Americanize it. Um, but at the same time, they are telling this story of, um, um, of the experience, you know, or at least they're trying to convey uh, some of the experience so that uh, American audiences can understand maybe some of the, 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 the ups, the struggles and the, um, uh, the, the experience of the Asian American experience. But I think that does create an opportunity for an, an Asian American version of it, a la um, a, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, Joy Luck Club and, and Wedding Banquet yeah. style. So I think I would not mind seeing. Yeah, I, I, I think I'd like to see an Americanized version of this, but not with such overbearing, like making it completely western you know well yeah and maybe the maybe like the central theme is more from like a japanese american perspective where it's about maybe they go to visit not uh an you know an aunt but maybe a grand grandmother's house and she was in a japanese internment camp as a young girl here in america Mm -hmm. you know and then how does that like divide generational divide factor into things i don't know Holy crap, you could even I think there's the remake right there is, you know, you take something so tragic and you you kind of, you know, you tell a bit of a loose comedy about it. Maybe that's what um, he was trying to do. You know, like maybe the remake American version takes place in the internment camp. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not trying to um, definitely not trying to be insensitive to uh, to what it was and what happened. But for the sake of a of a film and you know pushing an envelope and being a bit edgy i think uh i think we have something there and uh, going back to my my last thing about um being loyal and making it an all japanese cast i, I wouldn't think so now i think definitely just highlighting some great asian american actors or just asian actors in general to to do this would be a good idea yeah. so i am a bit surprised that non-white casting uh, became this kind of discussion. I think this was good. Yeah. All right. We can put a white person in there. It's okay. Just, just one. Just one token. Just one. <laughs> All right. So the next portion of the show, we're going to go into our corners. Chris into the producer's corner and myself into the director's corner. These are kind of like our areas that... Uh, We've kind of studied the most, concentrated the most on. So uh, let's jump in. All right. Producer's Corner. Um, you know, I love how our little show here uh, sort of answers itself backwards. <laughs> we touch on a lot of this stuff already, but hey, it, it, it's fun. It's entertaining. I hope you guys are entertained. Looking at this from a producer's perspective, I'm in awe. That's what I'll say. I just, again, not knowing you know our last film we spoke about was 1992 dollars you know 1977 (laughs) dollars i mean we weren't we weren't alive and just what we know about filmmaking what we know about you know our own research our own you know just just joy into diving deep about how these things are made um and the element (laughs) that this film has of purposefully being uh, a bit cheap with some of the um, some of the design and, and, and just the, the production. It's a unique 
uh, amount of production value. I think I I have I have way more questions than I do you know solutions or even really a, a take on the corner here. I I would love to see the budget, and I'm talking about excuse me, I'm talking about the actual paper budget. Yeah. I want to see the line items. I want to see uh, how they you know how they went about the process of making this um, because. Even even now, we do know that any amount of special effects, it's it's sort of a process. You have to close all your tabs and focus on this one thing in front of you and talk and excuse me, collaborate with another creative to get these things across, you know, to say, I want her eaten by the piano. How are we going to do that? I mean, it's. You know, it's it's a mix of practical effects and and some post-production work and, and your lighting and just everything. Um, again, I'm in awe of this and uh, I, I'd love to see the uh, documentation of this film. I, I want to see, uh, you know, the BTS, how it was made. I, I think that it could have been. I think maybe I'm making much ado about nothing and it was probably easier than um, than I think in terms of execution that was made. It would be it would be a one hell of a learning experience. I, I think I'd be personally, I think I'd be a bit intimidated by the script um, if it would, you know, if I was a producer and it was presented to me and we we're going to like make this, I would say ah, it, it's a challenge, you know, back then and even today, even today, it's a challenge without having you know held and, and seen the script ahead of time it it seems like the execution on on the story was spot on with this i think that they did a, a great job there um it the final product conveyed uh you know themes and messages and and character development um there was a few unanswered questions. I touched on uh, on those. I'm just in awe. I'm in awe. I, re- I respect uh, how this was made, how this was done. Yeah, definitely. All right. So I want to I want to talk about style and a filmmaker having a particular style or giving a movie a particular style. Uh, I think in like modern Western cinema, when people think about style, they think about like okay, Michael Bay has a style of movies people are like if you see a wes anderson movie or like a sh- if you just see like one shot from a wes anderson movie you're like okay that's wes anderson so that's kind of what i mean by like style all of those like elements kind of coming together and and telling you something and obayashi kind of talks about this a little bit in the the interview i watched that he wanted things to feel fake and so there's always kind of this divide between realism and, you know, more of an abstract illustration of the world in movies. Um, and kind of like an influential example of that is German expressionism. So that's like in the teens and 20s of the 20th century, you get like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, Hitchcock's The Lodger. And these are mostly like silent films where, and a lot of times they didn't have big budgets, but they were, 
not trying to recreate the look of reality. Instead of like f- going outside and filming a skyline that might just have like a collection of black rectangles and, you know, shoot shoot a shot of the character in front of that. That's the skyline. So it's more like abstract, unrealistic. Um, and I think we're just not used to that so much as Western audiences. Amen. We're just like, we want things to feel real. You know, like people get upset when uh, a Batman movie doesn't feel real to them. Like, oh, Batman isn't real enough. It's not gritty enough. Or or when it when it is real. <laughs> right. And kind of tied into that, like Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Returns, he has like said are influenced by German expressionism. Like they're not, you watch those movies and everything looks fake, just like in house. Like, you know, that these characters are on a set there. You, you know, there's only like 20 people gathered to listen to a, a speech from the mayor of Gotham or whatever, but it's like you accept it because it, it fits within that world. And so I was thinking that about that a lot as I was watching house uh, that it's, and it still feels fresh because it's like movies can be whatever we want them to be. Um, and when I first watched house in 2009, it kind of like gave me permission to do weird things in movies. And Chris has seen like some of my short films, uh, he's worked on some with me. Like I try to push those boundaries of reality a little bit. Because we can. And you should. Exactly. Yeah. And like we were saying earlier, like this is supposed to be a fantasy world because Obayashi's saying these girls don't understand real pain. They don't know war. Kind of another thing that factors into this for me is the cinematography, the editing, like all those choices are off the wall in this movie. And like movies going for realism, those aspects might be like camera work might be motivated by a character's movement. So the character is walking and the camera just follows behind them. Or maybe the, the editing's motivated by story or by a line of dialogue. Uh, but house, it feels like it's more motivated by emotion, uh, by like perspective, by having like a childlike perspective. Um, Chris, you mentioned this shot earlier after the girls meet gorgeous again, after she's been possessed, it's like the, the camera work gets very like laggy. And I actually liked that because it's, it's telling, (laughs) it's telling the viewer that like something's off, like something's (laughs) wrong. And, you know, obviously they'd never like attempt. A lot of filmmakers wouldn't try to do that today because an audience might be like, oh, my streaming service is broken. Oh, it's so laggy, you know? <laughs> it's like in, uh, in The Last Jedi when when the sound cuts out for a moment. So many, like, theater goers were having complaints when, uh, when Laura Dern, like, flies the ship into the other ship or whatever. And the, oh, like, yeah, screen yeah. goes, like, black and there's, like, no sound mm-hmm. for a moment. Like, people didn't know what to do with that. That, you mm-hmm. know, that's expressionism. And then in terms of like the perspective, there's uh, a moment I like a lot. I think it's either like maybe it's sweet, maybe it's fantasy, 
who's like sitting across from Prof and like closing one eye at a time and the the editing, the camera's switching back and forth between like coming from the left side to the right side, kind of like to to like simulate like if you close your eyes and then, you know, lose your binocular vision, mm. you know, that kind of change in perspective. And uh, I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is like, because I did that as a kid too. I still do that sometimes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just really liked that like youthful energy to everything. And I liked, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel real, but neither does like the never ending story. If you, if you go back and watch that, like a lot of the sets look super fake. Oh man. <laughs> but, but, but you also know that it, it's supposed to be a fantasy. It's supposed to be, you know, it's supposed to be fake. So it works. Well said. Well said. Um, I, you know, I, I, thanks for going easy on me, Sean. I, 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 um, I think that's kind of how I opened this whole thing was I, I wonder if this is just one of those films that I'm not going to get, you know, but it is, it has been a joy like reviewing it and thinking about it. And I like that it sat with me all week. Um, I, I, I like how you, you just highlighted the, the, expressionism themes and it, it makes sense you know and it, i think it's good to unpack it the way we did it it uh it helps me process it a lot more you know for the record i didn't dislike it um it was it was kind of tough for me yeah well but, and it's um, a it's a cult film so it's like most people haven't seen it mm-hmm. um yeah most people probably wouldn't like it that's okay yeah no and that is okay um but yeah, it's I, I appreciate this film. I must say that I appreciate this film. Me too. Questionable questions. Um, yeah, yeah. I have uh, I had two originally, and I felt like one kind of sprung up in in our discussion. Uh, my first question to you, yeah, I'll ask you my two. Do you want to go first? You, want you me can to go. go first? You can go first. Okay. Uh, my first question is we're not going to look at this as though you were a boy or a girl. Let's just say you, if you were in this movie, what would your character name be? Holy shit. You stole my question. Are you serious? Yeah, it's right on my screen. Oh my God. Here's my question. Each girl is distilled down to one character trait with a name that matches. Like if, you know, one girl likes music. So her name is melody. If you had to whittle your personality down into one trait, what would it be, and what would your name be? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I think it's only fair that you answer and I answer. I'll answer first. Right. Uh, I like pizza, so I think I think my, my thing would be that I'm always talking about pizza, and my name would be Pepperoni. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um... I, this is, this this is so rapid fire. I, um, I think my name would be skates because I kept putting myself in the time when, um, when I think I would have watched this in the early nineties and me and my friends, we went roller skating, rollerblading a lot and, you know, we enjoyed it and I really enjoyed that. And I, I feel that in, you know, like in Back to the Future, you had that one character in Biff's group called 3D, or at least he was casted. Yep. He was uh, in the credits that 3D way. Glasses. But he, 
but I never heard anyone say, Hey, 3d, come on. You know, <laughs> like it was kind of odd to, to have that, but yeah, and he wore 3d glasses. So I think to sort of tie in with the goofiness of this, uh, and, and add another even more chaotic thing is my character would always be on skates with the Love group it. and I'd be called skates. Love it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was, when I was yeah. thinking of that question, I was picturing, cause in grad school you would always carry around a football uh, I was thinking you'd be the you'd be the one to carry around a football and maybe maybe your name would be coach. Yeah, or Charlie yeah. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a that's a good one. That's crazy. We get the same question. Uh well, I mean I, I had more that just kind of came up. What was your second question? You said you had two. My second question is um it's 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 fits perfect into what we're doing right now, talking about and recording it. So we're at the end. My second question is, what do you think of what I thought about it? I'm not surprised by by your reaction, especially like your initial reaction, because I think uh, I think sometimes you get in your head about like hyping up what a movie should be or like what, you know, you kind of put it on a pedestal instead mm. of you need to just bring it down to your level, you know, so. Sean's putting me on the couch. So I, I could see, I thought you'd be intimidated by it. Yeah. But I thought, I thought overall you'd have, you'd have some laughs. I could picture you grinning at some moments while watching it. Uh, that's kind of what I expected. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> um, let me ask, let me ask one last question. Please, please. Have your opinions of the film changed at all since watching it? And now it's almost like a week later. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. Um, I mean, unpacking it and like you said, being intimidated by it, it it's true. It's true. And, and then that's been a bit of like, there's a bit of um, wanting to save face. You know, you ever been in like a, a conversation with people or, or even with a group of people and everybody um, sort of is talking about this one thing and, and they all get it and you don't want to be the one who doesn't get yeah. it. So you just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you just kind of agree with the consensus. Yep. Um, I was afraid that that was going to be the case here. And, you know, putting myself on the couch, you know, that that's I think that there's um, self-esteem issues uh, layered in that. And I think we all sort of experience that in terms of like, you know, wanting to be or fearing that you're like you're you're dumb. You just don't get it. You know, yeah. that whole kind of like mean girls thing is um and and I so desperately want to get it, and that desperation translate to translates to what you said about putting the film on a pedestal, you know. Which again is why, like I like I said earlier, I didn't I didn't want to do a lot of research on it, yeah, because I didn't want that to interrupt with this organic discussion. I feel like if I would have done a lot of research on it, maybe that'd be a good thing to do. Is if we if one of us has seen the film. Only that person should do the research yeah, to not. Maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe. Um, but yeah, I was I was nervous. I was like, oh, okay. If I do all this research and I learn about it, then I'm it's gonna impact the way that I unpack it and, and talk about right. it, and not allow me to be raw with the um, would not allow me to be vulnerable with explaining my experience. Yeah. You know, and 
it's nice to, um, you know, uh, to borrow a quote from our friend. It's nice to be in good hands. It, it has changed 100 percent. And and I like it. Um, maybe a, another shot would be like, would you recommend this to somebody? I think I would. I would. I have done quite a bit of uh, viewings uh, with people in the last uh, two years, and I really like to get their opinions about them. And this is definitely one I'd want someone else to uh, I'd want to hear what they think about it, you know, Um so I think we did a we had a great film choice yeah. here. Um, well, it's it's definitely better in a group, uh, with an audience. I feel like all movies are that way, but but this one in particular, because it's not really a horror movie. Watching a horror movie by yourself, at, you know, in the darkness, can have a certain effect. But like, this is uh, <laughs> even Obayashi says this is kind of like a fantasy film. He doesn't really see it as a horror film. That's right. Yeah, it said. Um, I think I saw a description of this was labeled as fantasy horror. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, I've always, I've had a bit of difficulty with fantasy, certain fantasy. Yeah. I kind of see it as more of a Kung Fu movie, but maybe I'm alone. <laughs> no, yeah, I can see that, you know, a bit of uh, flying around in the air. I'm looking at the, the one sheet right now, the, what looks like the original one sheet. Um, I kind of like that one better. Even that is abstract. You don't know oh, what's yeah, going sure. on. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Well, this has been uh, Circle Takes. We'll see you around.